This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. In today's conversation, I sit down with Amy Kurzweil, the author of the new graphic memoir, Artificial, A Love Story. Artificial, A Love Story tells the story of three generations of artists whose search for meaning and connection transcends the limits of life. The story begins with the large language model generated chatbot that Amy's father, the futurist Ray Kurzweil, created out of his father's archive. But the story doesn't start and end there. Instead, the story takes us on a journey through new questions that technologies are asking us about what it means to be human. How do we relate to and hold our family's past? And how is technology changing what it means to remember that past? And what does it mean to know and to love in the age of AI? Amy Kurzweil is a New Yorker cartoonist and the author of two graphic memoirs, Flying Couch, a New York Times editor's and Kirkus best memoir of 2016, and Artificial, a love story, published in October of 2023. She was a 2021 Berlin Prize Fellow with the American Academy in Berlin, a 2019 Shearing Fellow with the Black Mountain Institute, and she's received fellowships from McDowell Jurassic and elsewhere. Her work has been nominated for a Rubin Award and an Ignatz Award for Technophilia, a four-part series with The Believer magazine. Her writing, comics, and cartoons have also been published in The Verge, The New York Times Book Review, Longreads, Literary Hub, Wired, and many other places. She's taught writing and comics at Parsons, the New School for Design, the Fashion Institute of Technology, the Center for Talented Youth, Interlochen Center for the Arts, in New York City Public Schools, and in many other venues, and she currently teaches a monthly cartooning class to a growing community of virtual students around the world. Hi, Amy. Hi, great to be here. So Amy, I thought we'd start by talking about the title of your new book, um, a graphic novel titled Artificial, and I'm gonna spell it out here, colon, a love story. So that entire title is Artificial, colon, a love story. It's such a gripping title for the, I think, multitude of things it suggests. On the one hand, the idea of falling in love with artificial things. On the other hand, that love itself is an artifice, not in the sense of being superficial or contrived or deceitful or insincere, but rather a kind of sleight of hand, something that has effects that seem almost magical. I could have so many different permutations about what this title might mean. I wonder if you could talk uh, uh, to us a little bit about how you see that title. What's the relationship between, on the one hand, the idea of the artificial, and on the other hand, the idea of love? What pulls them together for you? Thank you so much for that articulation of the title. I know this is a good title because my mom likes it. As I was working on this book, you know, this book is about my father and my grandfather and also features my partner. And my mom the whole time was like, why is it a love story? Why is it called artificial love story? And my hope is that people start off the book wondering why it's called a love story. And then they come to a sort of an understanding about what that means by the end of the book. But the reason why I thought that was a compelling title is because when we think of the word artificial, we tend to have negative connotations. We think there's some sort of, as you said, sleight of hand, or we think there's some sort of falseness in the word artificial. My father, who's a character in the book, Ray Kurzweil, inventor and futurist, he's talked about 
artificial intelligence as a misnomer because he feels like the idea of artificial intelligence is selling AI short, that it's not artificial intelligence, it's real intelligence, you know, which is something we can talk more about. So I think there is this negative connotation to the word artificial. But the way that I was coming to that word artificial as an artist, of course, the word art isn't the word artificial, is thinking about human handicraft. And specifically craft and the idea that the things that we make with our hands, the things that we make as humans, what are those things? And my, my uncle, who's a writer, sent me this, this definition of the word artificial from the first Encyclopedia Britannica from 1771 and I actually put it in the appendix of my book and I found it, so I'm going to read it to you. It says, artificial in a general sense denotes something made, fashioned, or produced by art in contradistinction from the productions of nature. And so I was thinking about artifice and the artificial as human-made things that are in distinction to the productions of nature, you know, whatever that means. And when you think about artificial a love story, it is like, how is it such that the things we make with our hands contribute to the love stories in our lives? And how is it that our own labor and our own craft helps us love people and the world more deeply. You know, you're making me think about something that I always remind my students of when I talk about the ethics of technology, which is that technology is in our common, I think, way of thinking about it, artifice, everything that is, for example, super science-y uh, and something that maybe uh, supersedes what we think of as either art or craft. But the word techne itself is our the root word for technology and it comes from the Greek techne, which means art or craft or woven thing. It's the same root word from which we get that word textile, which means woven thing or text. That is to say the idea of the book, which is a woven thing. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this idea of artificial as you understand it, this idea of artificial as moving beyond artifice into art itself. And one of the, I think, tensions in the book itself, which is the tension between art on the one hand and technology on the other hand. I thought a lot about what makes something art and what makes something technology. I think the more I thought about that question, the more confused I got, the less I could see the distinction. But I do feel like maybe the answer for the difference between the two has to do with their role historically. And historically, we've thought of technology as something that we use to solve problems. Um, that's also a definition of intelligence is the ability to solve problems. I think we think of technology as something that extends our reach in order to achieve a certain end. And I think we think of art potentially as transcending that sort of product or problem-solving paradigm, or at least that's maybe how I think about art. Um, I think about art as something that is about connecting us to other people. So it's really just maybe art and technology are both these extensions of human craft, but they tend to be used, at least historically, in different ways. So I think that's sort of what I was thinking about in the, the project of, of my book. And we should probably talk a bit about sort of what, <laughs> what the plot of the book is. Um, but I was thinking about, are we getting to a point with technology where it's, it's complicating our understanding of who we are as human beings, the, the way we use technology as sort of fundamentally about solving problems is starting to get complicated 
because our understanding of technology as distinct from us is starting to get complicated. And so it does feel like art and technology are blurring in, a, in an interesting way. Well, I have so many questions about, for example, how uh, you're thinking about the relationship between your book and the kinds of love stories that it's telling. I have so many questions about the relationship between your book, which is itself a piece of art about technology and how you see the relationship between the book and its object of inquiry in, in many senses, which is the relationship between technology and, and human beings. But maybe we should talk a little bit about <laughs> what the book is itself before we get into some of the more philosophical questions about it. I'm sure that especially as you are heading into a publicity tour, as I understand that you are for the book, people ask you or are going to ask you to give a summary or an overview of the work. And I was thinking myself about how I would describe this book in an introduction to the book or how I would describe its form, which is a graphic novel. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with the term, a graphic novel looks a little bit like a comic strip, but has a long form context, or in other words, is the size of a, a novel length story. Um, but uses the form of, of a comic uh, strip, if you're familiar with that form. And I got to the point of trying to describe it, that the description was so complex, the book itself is so multi-layered and complex, that I came up short trying to do so. So I thought I might ask you to introduce the idea of the book or how you talk about the book when you're asked to talk about it. Can you describe the book for us? Tell us a little bit about what it is, uh, what it's about, what story you're telling. Yes. Yes. Well, first of all, I just want to say I really appreciate that you feel it's a complex book and it's hard to summarize into an elevator pitch because, you know, as a writer, you're asked to do that so often. As an academic, I'm sure you're asked to do that so often. And it is very difficult. So I, I appreciate that um, acknowledgement of the complexity. The way I typically introduce this book is it's a memoir, you know, so graphic memoir is, a, is another word that I would use to describe it. It's a memoir, a family memoir, and it's a story about my father, Ray Kurzweil, who has a, a career as an inventor and somebody who writes about the future of technology, uh, one of the early pioneers in, in artificial intelligence. And he went on a quest to create a chatbot built from my grandfather's archives. So I was a part of that mission. I helped my father by wading through the archives, finding my grandfather's writing, and helping to, in a sense, resurrect my grandfather's voice through marrying his documents with artificial language technology, natural language technology. In the book, it's a sort of a, it's, I call it a large language model. The, the term large is uh, a bit relative. So this project happened in like 2015, 16, 17. And so the technology back then, the language models were not as large as they are now, but it was a sort of early large language model. So. This chatbot was created at the time of its creation. It was felt very sci-fi. It didn't feel like something that people were doing. It felt very eerie, you know, that the voice of my grandfather was being resurrected. And I wanted to document this process. So I, so that's what I, I, I did with the book. And in documenting the process, I spent a lot of time with my grandfather's archives. And in creating the book, I ended up spending a lot of time recreating my grandfather's archives. And so that's an element in the book. Another element in the book is the question of the chatbot project for me became, can I get to know my grandfather? Can I potentially get to love my grandfather through this process? Process being building the AI and also interacting with the AI. And that 
question ended up being relevant to other questions in my life. And questions of love for my family, questions of love for my partner, who is a moral philosopher who serves as a kind of sounding board for a lot of the ethical questions that the chatbot evokes in the book. And so the story of the chatbot is told in juxtaposition with a period of my life in which I am trying to understand what it means to love somebody. And that ends up having implications for my sense of self and identity and where does one person end and another person begin. And uh, so the, the animating project of the book ends up blossoming into all of these philosophical questions, which is why the book is so complicated to explain. Well, I wanted to pick up on one of the threads that you that you mentioned and pulled it out a little bit more, which is that in addition to the complexity of reckoning with the idea of love via or maybe through the prosthetic of a technological object, the way that that maybe reflects and then reforms questions of love via human beings um, as proxies for understanding yourself and the love for other human beings. It also strikes me that one of the, the questions about love is the relationship between, uh, on the one hand, art and technology. Um, it's very clear to me that one of the objects of love for you is actually art and that art itself is changed for you as an object because of the new relationship you understand it to have to technology. I guess one of the questions that I have here is thinking about the way that, that this memoir is itself a piece of art. It is composed literally of images of art that you have drawn that you use to tell a story about these philosophical questions about your encounter with them and, and fundamentally about the understanding of what it means to be human in an age of tech. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the form of the graphic memoir itself as a graphic memoir. How do we understand your you know, use of art. Again, I, I want to just mention here that you're you're an artist very publicly. You're a cartoonist for The New Yorker. Your first book, Flying Couch, is also a, a graphic memoir. How does the form of art that you use to tell the story, that is to say the graphic memoir, help us to think about or rethink the questions about the relationship between humans and technological production? I think I'll answer that by talking a little bit about how I got into graphic memoir and what I think is so compelling about comics. I, I teach and a lot of my students come to my class and they are writers and they have not drawn before, but they feel this, they feel compelled to draw because there's something that they want to communicate that they can't communicate in words. And usually that, that thing they want to communicate has to do with their emotional life or the experience of their body. And there's some way that they want to transmit that to a reader that they just feel like they change it or they squash it or they minimize it or it sounds pretentious or whatever when they try to do it in words. And when they sit down to draw, especially if they're not trained, something is communicated. You know, there's some transmission of information and simple lines on paper that's really magical. And that's that's part of why I got into comics. I started writing comics because I wanted to tell the story of my grandmother in my first book, Flying Couch, my grandmother, the Holocaust survivor. She had this epic story of leading her whole family behind uh, in Warsaw and surviving on her own. And I used drawing as a way to try to cathartically express and represent some of the emotion of her story that I felt like I just couldn't get to in words. And it was a very powerful experience for me to realize that I could access 
emotion and transmit emotion in in that way, even without being like a quote unquote trained artist. And I think there is something about the comic style. It's expressive and abstract. And there's something about the minimalism of comics, the fact that it's not reality, the fact that it's not realistic. And of course, there are exceptions. There are some comics that work with a realistic style, and I can talk about why they might be doing that. But for the most part, comics work in this expressive abstract. We call it iconically abstract. It's sort of in the realm of icons. Works in that style. And that is this sort of magical way that people are both receiving what the artist has created and filling it with their own projection. Comics works with this concept called closure, which is when the reader is sort of animating and filling in the parts of the comic that aren't there, either between the images or within, within the images. And I think that that's the magic of this form, that it's like this place where the mind of the creator and the mind of the reader are both working together to create this reality and to communicate and to have a sort of shared consciousness through the realm of, of, of images. Of course, that works in words, but it works in a different way. There's something really kind of visceral. I think that's the word. There's something visceral about the way that that works with comics and with simple images. And so I think that gets to the, the heart of why I was drawn to the form, especially for telling emotional stories about my family. But this book in particular, I think the graphic memoir form worked for another reason, which is that I was so engaged in my grandfather's archive, and I wanted to give the reader the sort of verisimilitude, like the experience of reality, of my reality, of being in the archive, of holding these objects. You know, there's a lot of images in the book of like hands holding pieces of paper. There are lots of these archival documents that I painstakingly recreated. And the recreation of those archival documents helped me see those archival documents differently, helped me see them more closely, helped me understand things and see details and have realizations that I wouldn't have had if I didn't spend time looking at them and drawing them. So I think there was something in the, in the form of the graphic memoir and something in the process of the graphic memoir that felt really important for this particular book. Can you give us an example of one, one of those experiences you had where the process of reproduction or recreation changed or altered your perception or understanding of the document itself or maybe the larger story? There's so many. I mean, I would say the one example that comes to mind is recreating my grandfather's passport and the amount of time that I spent looking at these particular dates on his passport and the significance of like, I mean, so something to explain for context is that Jewish passports and my grandfather is a was a musician from Vienna and he fled the Nazis in, in 1937, 1938. And his life was saved because he found a, a sponsor who an American woman who'd heard him play and who decided that she wanted to help him escape the Nazis by by sponsoring him to the United States. So he, he has this passport, which is a very important document historically. If you if you ever Google like J's on passports. You'll see all these images of these iconic Jewish passports from you know somewhere in Eastern Europe, stamped with this big red J, which is what the Nazis did to Jewish passports. And so I have this actual passport of my grandfather's, stamped with the J, stamped with all these different stamps. And they tell this story of like how he left and why and where he went. And I needed somebody. I ended up contacting a historian who helped me understand and 
um, put together the sort of the details of the of the dates and what story they told. But there was something else that was communicated to me in just the time spent tracing the actual stamps. Because there's something about like, it's really hard to put into words, but there's something about the varied texture of the stamp that almost makes me feel like a person, a Nazi, <laughs> like pushed this stamp onto paper in front of my grandfather and, you know, or wrote out 10, 10, 38, you know, the day that he, he left, left Vienna. Like you can see the difference between like, was it written? Was it stamped? And you get this sense memory. It's like a hallucination, but it's like a, a hallucination based on information. Um, I get the experience of like him with his passport leaving. It's not a full experience of what that was like. I won't know what that was like. I have very information about my grandfather's experience of leaving Vienna other than his passport. But without that experience of really, really looking at these tiny little details that I have, I don't think it would have impacted me quite as much, that story of him leaving. I, I really do think the time I spent looking at the documents caused this experience in me that is like, that history is more embodied and more understood. I am so fascinated by the story that you just told because I think that it pulls me into one of the fundamental questions that I have about the relationship between humans and the technologies that are at stake in your book, as well as what it means to know a human being as a technological avatar. Because what you're talking about are all of the things in the excess of what the documents themselves say. When you're talking about the chatbot that your dad created of your grandfather, which includes documents that talk about or put into language the experience of his flight from Vienna, his experience of being a musician looking for work in the United States, uh, oftentimes unsuccessfully, the kinds of disappointments that he may have experienced as a highly trained musician who seems to have a very promising future in Vienna coming to the United States and grappling with American exclusions and the, the disappointments of that in American society. But what you're talking about is how your way of knowing deeply and intimately or getting a sense of that experience lies outside of anything that the chatbot could retain from the documents themselves because what the chatbot retains, what the chatbot is able to assess and then to put out as a sense of your grandfather is tied to the language in those documents and not all of the different kind of extra textual or textural dimensions of those documents that, that you see as so important. I guess the question here is, do you feel like you know your grandfather better through the project, number one? And number two, do you feel like the avatar itself helps you know your grandfather better? And is knowing him or relating to him through the chatbot that your dad created, through the documents left in his archive, the same thing as knowing him? Yeah, such a great question. I mean, it's the question of the book. And I don't think I have it, that question answered fully, but it's certainly the case that I know my grandfather better than I did before starting this project, before working on this book, before being involved in searching for and typing up his writing, before conversing with the chatbot. That's cer it's certainly the case that I know him better. I don't want to spoil, spoil the book too much, but... 
the, the book is definitely moving me in that direction. That feels very clear. I think the question is, how do I know him better? And that's a bit harder to pull apart. You know, I think the chatbot was an occasion for me to spend time and attention with his life and his legacy and his memory. And it was also an occasion to spend more time with my father. And that's potentially one of the ways that I got to know my grandfather better. And I think my father's ideas about resurrection, digital immortality and digital resurrection, I came to understand as sort of less techie maybe than I thought they were or or more compatible with, you know, sort of human maybe spiritual ideas uh, about sort of how we get to know people and how they might live on in our memories. You know, my father doesn't think that the chatbot as it exists in language is my grandfather or is enough to get to know my grandfather. You know, my, my father doesn't think that. I don't think that. You know, there is a question in the middle of the book when I'm, or it's actually towards the beginning, when I'm engaged in, in typing up my grandfather's documents and I have a sort of an interesting realization that I previously couldn't read his my grandfather's handwriting and I was struggling with reading his handwriting and then all of a sudden I'm able to realize it and it's this kind of mystical moment that I can't explain and it was it was very profound when suddenly like the words looked familiar to me um, and I conclude that question by asking is language enough to get to know someone and I think the answer is no you know I, I think that's that's a pretty it's pretty clear that language is not enough but my father's position is that technology transcends language and transcends symbols and that there will be this future where not only do we have people's text left behind but we have every kind of information possible about a person left behind and we can go into the brains of humans and plug out memories which is an extremely controversial claim but that you know but that every single way of experiencing a person we can preserve and we can recreate and that's you know that's really my father's thesis and the chatbot in the book is not is not coming close to doing that but the chatbot is this first step in that direction and it was an occasion for me to to think more deeply about my father's thesis like is that really possible can we preserve every element of a person of course we're not doing it yet but will we one day is that desirable is that possible and that question I think I don't have an answer to, but I do have a much deeper appreciation of how difficult that is. Um, because if the book taught me one thing, it is the sort of infinite complexity of human identity. It is so complex. It is it is potentially infinite, like to actually know a person in every single facet of who they are. So can we, can we record all of that? you know, in order to reproduce it. I don't know. <laughs> I still don't know that I have a deep understanding of, of how hard that project would be. I think one thing that I'm picking up on, and that's very fascinating to me, is the dimension of the story and the dimension of the questions philosophically that you're asking about memory and about knowing somebody else that seem to me to be essentially Jewish. I'm not sure that it's an accident that your family is Jewish and that your dad thinks very deeply about questions of memory and 
perpetuity and passing on legacy and tradition and knowledge about one's ancestors and that you're asking these questions of an ancestor who has ties to a Holocaust context. Scholarship on memory in the Jewish context is a, a very long and a very profound one. In fact, you know, if you want to think about Jewish history, most history is written from a sedentary position. Jewish history is an exception to that in the sense that Jewish history is the history of people in exile, the history of people who need to know one another across diaspora and across different geographical and spatial locations, the sense of a people across time and space. And so it's interesting to me that the questions of memory and knowing one another virtually uh, across the gaps of time and space and the intimacy of presence are also questions that your your and your family um, are asking and you know in particular Jewish history of the 20th century which deals with the destruction of evidence and the destruction of lives and the I think permutation the, the large explosive proliferation of attempts to document and to archive and to retain testimony are very much I think factors animating Jewish thought about memory in in the 21st century now in addition to all the ways that Jewish history I think extends and contemplates memory on a larger scale. So I, I'm wondering here, like whether there's a dimension of this story that is a, a particularly Jewish story. And I'm thinking in particular about the relationship that you draw and, and something that you say in the book very concretely that I hadn't thought about before as much as I've thought about the relationship between a Jewish thought and Jewish innovations and the essential components of Jewish philosophy when it comes to memory and thought and the uh, desire to know others who are, are not materially present. But also the idea that retention and the archivization uh, of information and documents have a particular importance for 20th century Jews fleeing Europe, that any information might be life-saving information, right? You keep a document as a Jew because it might save your life. It might be the thing that gets you out in the context of Nazi-occupied Europe. I'm wondering if you could think with me a little bit about the demands or the concentration or meditation on memory and, and the archive that maybe feed into some of the technologies when it comes to understanding your story as a Jewish story. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that context. And I definitely think of this as a Jewish story, not only because it references Holocaust history, but exactly because of this concern with resurrecting a past that was lost. I think in, in the Jewish context, we tend to think about loss as, you know, there's, there's sort of common loss and then there's annihilation. And I, I think about this personally because my mother's side of the family, my grandmother, who is the star of my first book, Flying Couch, she came from a, a context of annihilation where her whole family not only died, but of all documentation of them is lost. And so my first book was engaged with that legacy. And that is where drawing played a really important role for me because I I knew that I couldn't resur I could not picture my grandmother's lost context and her lost family members, quote unquote, realistically. That was impossible because I had no documentation of their existence. But I had a way to point to that absence. 
and a way to point especially to the emotion around that absence. And it started to feel for me like with my first book that the sort of evidence of the existence of these people was in me and was in my mother and in my grandmother and in our lived embodied experience. And that's partly why drawing felt so important. It's like I'm documenting on the page the feeling of not having these people and that is a kind of proof in, in you know entering into the the archive or like the library of humanity and that felt like a really important mission in this in my father's context there's some similar themes but it's interesting that there's almost the opposite problem which is that we have so much documentation <laughs> like and then you have the problem of well what's important and what is who, like who is making the decision about what to highlight about what to put into the you know the chatbot as one sort of techno archive that we're building what's you know what is when taken out of context sounds like it's telling a story that it's not meant to you know a very simple example is like i asked the chatbot tell me about your favorite composer and it started talking about uh, a student because it was referencing a letter of recommendation written for a student <laughs> so like you know they're, they're like that's a kind of basic uh, misunderstanding the kinds of things that happen with these uh, sort of selective chatbots, but it things like that are are liable to happen. So it's not that you're pointing to the absence anymore, like I am with my sort of grandmother's annihilation history. You're pointing to these things that might rep might misrepresent the past, and and that's you know that's its own that's its own problem. But to speak to sort of what you're asking about the Jewishness. I do think that the obsession with documentation is very much related to the actual reality of a document can save your life. And that is something that I came to understand through working on this project and speaking with my father and speaking with the sort of suddenly a few living relatives from that era in my left in my family. One of them is my aunt Dora, who actually died while I was working on the book, but she was able to through also her, her own writing and through conversations with her, highlight for me just how important it was to have the right documents to get out of Europe and how their life was standing in line to show somebody a document to prove that you didn't have a dog, you know, or, you know, show somebody a document to prove like that you had X, Y, and Z in your bank account and then we're going to, you know, forfeit X, Y, and Z in your bank account. But it was, there was just so many different ways in which you had to prove in writing what you were doing and what you weren't doing. And that, you know, I think that that does contribute to this archival fever that you mentioned. The The idea that that might actually lead someone like my father to some of his ideas about sort of like not only the importance of documents being saved, but documents comprising the resurrection of somebody's identity, I think is like it's poetic. You know, it, it feels like it follows, one follows from the other, at least in a, a poetic way. Yeah, I think that this is one of the complexities of the book. If I could resurrect a little bit more of this history and think about the relationship between, on the one hand, the attempts to preserve information that so animate Holocaust discourse in particular in the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, um, thinking of things, for example, like the Shoah Project, the Dimensions in Testimony Project at the Shoah Foundation, which did a, a similar kind of motivated uh, project in terms of asking Holocaust survivors questions and then creating a robust shorthand for what 
the creation is it's a hologram of those survivors that allow people to virtually interact with them understanding that the last of the survivors are going to be dying out and that the experience of talking to a survivor is going to be something uh, of the past holocaust discourse has been for most of its history animated by a desire to preserve any and all information when i did my episode of the show with the director at the time of the show foundation he was talking about how new innovations in technological moods of archiving or saving are pushing the new directions in testimony and the show archive to store its testimony on blockchain or on DNA as a way to preserve it. And it reminds me that our modes of preservation and archivization are always contingent upon and in conversation with the technologies we have available to do that. When I have conversations about data on this show that don't have to do with the Holocaust, the general tenor of those conversations is less about how do we preserve all data and more about data deluge. What do we do with the excess of data that we have that makes it almost impossible to really be able to know or determine or to tell stories about what it means? And so, you know, I look at the current state of Holocaust memory and Holocaust archivization, and I'm reminded of an experience that I had as a graduate student when I went to visit the Shoah Foundation, which stores hundreds of thousands of hours of Holocaust testimony. And then I go in to try and access that testimony so I can do something about it. And the computers aren't hooked up to the internet. And the whole area is like a storage closet with brooms and stuff in it. And I'm the only person there. And I wonder, you know, there's so much effort put into the engine of preservation and data collection and relatively little effort put into understanding what we can uh, know of it. This, I think, is relevant to the term that, that you suggested, this idea of an archive fever. It's something that we see both in the history of Holocaust preservation and in our current technological age where we have so many means by which to store information and so little activity, I think, put to understanding what that preservation of meaning might do in terms of promoting the information to something like knowledge. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that relationship as you see it, the desire to preserve, the instinct to preserve, and on the other hand, the kind of relatively little energy put into making sense of it. Yeah, I mean, there's a moment in my book where me and my father are in the storage unit, you know, there's this epic storage unit that has boxes and boxes in my grandfather's things, and my father is like, this is a challenge physically. <laughs> you know, like he's just like exhausted physically. You know, he's such a cerebral guy, but he's like physically exhausted by being around all this stuff. I just moved and I went through that feeling of, oh my God, I have so many things. What am I saving? Why am I saving? I mean, it's such a human experience. But to put it into, you know, a Holocaust context, I do think that one of the inheritances of coming from a Holocaust legacy is this. I mean, I don't want to call it hoarding, but it's this sort of drive to not let go of the past. Um, and it's this, if you know me personally, you know that that's a mark of my personality and something that I struggle with. You know, we talk about inherited trauma. Like, I think that is one of the, the more salient features of the inherited trauma of the Holocaust, which is that loss is really hard. You know, it, it's a strange situation to go from having lost everything and wanting the tiniest little scrap of information, just wanting a photograph, just wanting a letter, you know, which I think it was the condition of of Jews after the Holocaust. It's like we want some little sort of primary document to connect us to the same, to, to, so we know we're not hallucinating. Like we, 
we had a culture, we had, you know, we want to touch it, we want to connect to it. And now, you know, we may have lost a lot of primary objects and documents and still be in a condition where that stuff is sort of relatively limited, but we have not lost touch with like the next wave of Holocaust memory, which is like the testimony of people who have, who went through it. And then we have the testimony of the second generation. And then we have the testimony of the third generation, which I'm a part of. And so it is growing and growing and growing. And so something I think is really important about that exhibit you mentioned with the holograms, which it's at the museum, it is, I believe still is, maybe not anymore, but it was at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York. I wrote a short comic about going to see that exhibit and, and talking with it and engaging with it which I called Crossing Over, and it was all about sort of avatars and, and um, what the avatar is and what it does for us. And I think uh, something I realized from that exhibit is that what was powerful about it is the role play that it allows people to do. You know, in, in it, you might at first, you know, thought, think, oh, there's something misleading about this. There's a sort of trickery here to go back to that sort of original word, the original definition of artificial that we started off with. There's a kind of trickery here. It's tricking us into thinking that we're talking to these to these holograms, you know, when it's really just this very simple natural language understanding where it really just picks up on a keyword and then plays a recording of of a of a monologue and projects it as a hologram. So it kind of feels like you're talking to the people. You might see that as tricky. But I think it's really important because of the the role play and the opportunity to like act out a conversation with a person who feels real. And it makes the reality of the Holocaust feel real for people who may not have that embodied understanding of it in the way those of us who are connected to the history personally do. I think that's really, really important. And it doesn't matter so much that every moment of the Holocaust history, every ripple in the lake from the Holocaust is preserved. But I think what matters is that we have these sort of the ability to have what feel like human interactions with that legacy. I think that books are, you know, especially creative, compelling, emotion, emotional books are ways that we do that. And I think that this exhibit at the Museum of Jewish Heritage was an, another way to do that, to give people an embodied experience of the reality of this experience of, of catastrophic history. And, and also how people moved on from it, which I think is an important part of the history, too. And I think just to just to push on something a little bit more, it's not just that, you know, every single age has had its memory devices or prosthetics and has used the technologies available to create means by which to restore memory to the community or to animate memory or to keep memory as a touchstone. Uh, you can think about writing as one of the earliest technological innovations that started to do this. We can think about, you know, the, the 20th century and the history of preservation and archival documents. And in the 21st century, uh, in the context of, of Holocaust memory, for I think the reasons that you so eloquently suggested, what we're seeing as so much of an effort to use AI technologies to interface with Holocaust memory. The other day, I mean, I, I hear about a new one at least once a week. I was in Boston last week and somebody at the Holocaust Memorial there let me know of the new of a new project called Numbers to Names, which is a way to explore Holocaust photo and video archives through AI. It's using AI to essentially identify faces and collections 
and to restore names and individuality to uh, those persons in, in photographs. And so I guess I'm wondering here, given your experience working with AI as a means by which to connect not only to your grandfather, but open up a portal to a Holocaust history, whether you think the technologies that we're developing are changing how we understand Holocaust memory or Holocaust history or our relationship to the past, maybe even more broadly. Yeah. And that numbers to name project to me is very moving. I, I don't know about that, but I, I find that I find that moving because it feels like it's acknowledging something really important about what's devastating about Holocaust memory, which is the sort of loss of dignity, you know, the loss of like a proper burial for so many people, uh, like a loss of the name, you know, and I, I, I find projects like that to be very I need to learn more about it, but it feels like it's sort of in the right direction of like the potential of of this technology. I think ultimately it does need to be dignified, like dignifying, you know, human loss. But the question, how is technology changing Holocaust memory? I see our AI and technology of our moment as helping us navigate. It's almost like a magic carpet. <laughs> like it, it's helping us navigate, find, surf you know, the wave of information deluge that is that is starting to be a condition of our era. And I think that's a really important use for AI. I I started to think a little bit of the, the chatbot of my grandfather as like a time traveling portal for me. So it wasn't so much that my grandfather was being resurrected and brought into, you know, the present and becoming this character that I engaged with. That's not the experience I had, but I think the experience I had was that I was being transported instantly through AI, through natural language understanding. I was being transported to these different parts of his life based on an interest or a question that I had, you know? So the way the technology works is like, I asked a question, there's a model of understanding of that question, and then it matched something from my grandfather's archive to that question in a, in a relatively sophisticated way. And so I was shown answers that I may not have thought were relevant to my question. I was like brought to parts of his life, you know, jumping around in time. So it's kind of an interesting experience to jump around in time in a conversation. But I was like brought as a time traveler to that moment. And that made the experience of navigating his archive easier, less physically challenging, you know, to go back to my father's <laughs> exhaustion in the archive. It, it was like a that element of it was very kind of sci-fi and like supersonic, you know, to me that I was jumping around through his archive. There is something something lost in that experience is the touch and the feel of those of those documents, which I do think to go back to what I was talking about earlier, those documents do have and contain information that at this point in the state of the chatbot did not get communicated, you know, like, especially if things were handwritten, you know, was the, was the handwriting shaky? Was the handwriting clear? You know, that all just gets wiped away in, in the sort of current state of our technology. So I, it, it's interesting to imagine what the next level of preservation might look like. But I think ultimately what's changing about our relationship to these archives is we have something that brings us around it in a way that makes it easier um, and less overwhelming. I guess I want to just pick up on something that I see as 
contradiction um, in the project of creating an avatar of your grandfather, Some something that I think that the project itself conflates, uh, which is the idea that you're speaking to when you're talking to that avatar is an archive. And if the avatar itself seems to be presuming that what it is is actually memory. I teach data science at Berkeley currently, and um, when I talk to data scientists in that program, I remind them that we use that word to count to mean both to measure and to matter. And I'll say a little bit about the connection between this point and the conflation of archive and memory in a second. Uh, But when I say that we use that term to mean to measure and to matter, what I am ultimately getting at is the idea that we measure or we retain or we collect that which we think matters to begin with. That something is counted does not mean that it is the entirety. It just means that we have made decisions about what to collect and to retain. And as I was preparing for this interview, I reread some of the academic work that has influenced my thinking on the relationship between memory and the archive and the durability of the past. And it reminded me of that doubleness between measuring and mattering. I pulled up an essay by the great thinker Yosef Hayim Gimroshami, who's was asked to speak on on the cusp of the 20th century on the idea of the archive as a form of memory. And in that speech, he begins by immediately challenging the idea of the archive as memory itself. He writes that the idea of the twinning of the two makes him uneasy, and, and I'll quote him here. He says, archives and memory have nothing in common. Memory is not an archive, nor is archive a memory bank. The documents in an archive are not part of memory. If they were, we would have no need to retrieve them. Once retrieved, they're often at odds with memory. He goes on to say that among his many objections to the idea of the archive as memory, and, and I'll quote him here again, no archive can yield sufficient material to understand the subjects or answer the questions that its own documents present. This is so not only because so many pertinent documents never reached the archive to begin with and are forever lost to us, or because for those who have been preserved, there are related documents in other archives that may be equally or more important. But also that because in order to be understood, any archive uh, or archival document must be contextualized by the information outside and beyond the archive or even beyond the field itself. And finally, he concludes that the archive is not a repository of the past. Only certain archives of the past that have survived from the past, that is to say, the things that we count, things that that past thought that mattered. And I was thinking about Yerushalmi when reading your book and considering the idea that your grandfather's archive can somehow yield a simulation of him. I'm not sure that that's the case. I think that many of us keep things that truly make us us, things that make us known to intimate others off the record precisely because they're intimate. And that when we recognize ourselves in a special relationship with others, part of the idea of that relationship is that what we've said to them or what they know of us is singular and irreplicable and off the record. And that knowing a person means not only knowing that person as an individual, but also knowing that person as enmeshed in a matrix of all other things in the environment. So how do you think about the relationship between your grandfather's archive on the one hand and the idea of his living memory on the other hand? Does a chatbot complicate that division between the two, especially as Yerushalmi wants to divide them? Or does it actually reinforce that distinction? Or does it do something else in your view? Yeah, I just love this paper that you sent me. I plan to read it because I feel it's speaking to something that I was thinking of and actually writing into the book. It reminded me of this line in the book that I I just flipped to. Speaking of memory, I would not be able to necessarily recall it perfectly, so you could just flip to it in the book. But there's a moment when I'm in the storage unit and I say, 
it's tempting to think of this room as Fred's memory. And then I go through sort of like, oh, uh, somebody asked the question and then I find this document, you know, like, what did you do in the army? And I reach and I find like a, a newspaper article about a performance he did because he was a orchestral conductor a, or orchestra band conductor in the army. And like this process of like asking questions of the archive and receiving an answer is a simulation of memory. There's an appearance of memory, then I say our memories are not storage units. We do not hold static images in our mind labeled with dates and descriptions of significance. Memory is more art than science, uh, which is speaking to that sort of the early questions you were asking me about the role of art and technology. I felt strongly as I was working on this project that there was a difference between the archive and the memory uh, of a person. And exactly for the reasons that you bring up, you, it requires context to understand what some of the quote-unquote answers that the chatbot gave us meant. And also that there, in my grandfather's case, there was a particular emphasis on what he wanted to preserve. He was somebody who was always looking for work in the United States and had a lot of ambition for his public self. And so he documented more of his public self and more of this sort of there were more cover letters in our, in the archive than journal entries, you know, like that's sort of the, you know, the what we have preserved of him for historical reasons that have to do with both who he was as a person and, you know, the condition of his life in the U.S. And that is like that requires interpretation to understand. So, you know, the chatbot itself doesn't exist in a vacuum. The chatbot exists in relationship to my book, first of all, which is, you know, why I wanted to write a book about it, because I didn't just want to chat <laughs> to the author in the world without that contextualization necessarily. And it exists in relationship to me and in relationship to my father and in relationship to my my aunt, you know, my um my dad's sister who's who's still around and in relationship to my brother. And you know, it, it exists in relationship to all these people who are still around to engage with it and to contextualize it. And so I think it's absolutely true that the chatbot is not Fred's memory, but I don't think it's purporting to be. I mean, but I do think that there is that danger, you know, with these kinds of technologies that they might trick people. But I think to go back to some of the earlier things we were talking about, like that trickery is not in the service of deception. It's in the service of creating an, an embodied experience that can help people, help certain things sink in, you know? So it's like having this relationship this conversation with the chatbot is an experience that I I don't have naively, right? I have it with this sort of idea that in order to be an understood archi archival document thing to be contextualized. And like, it's a strange double consciousness, but I don't think it's uh, beyond our capacity, you know, the, the sort of double consciousness that you need to have when you engage with this kind of technology. I, I, I I think that's that the that we keep that kind of double consciousness in mind all the time. You know, like any conversation I have with a person, I don't take to be uh, a perfect representation of them. I don't take people's like even reporting of their memory to be their memory, right? Like I, I understand that memory is much more nuanced than any of us know, um, but I certainly understand that like memory and language, that the, the um, relationship between memory and language is much more complicated for a human person. I mean, you know, so I, I keep that in mind when I engage with the chatbot.
for sure. I want to draw something else out from that same Yerushalmi piece. Uh, in the piece, he concludes by making a distinction between information and wisdom. Writing for the 20th century, I think he makes a very prescient prediction that foretells our current state of relationship with data in the information age. He writes that we live in a time, again, this is the 20th century this is a 20th century piece of writing here. We live in a time where we're flooded with information in every field of endeavor. It has become a veritable industry over which it is difficult to maintain even bibliographical control. The amount of sheer information he's talking about, what I'm calling data deluge, increases incessantly. I confess that I have reached an age where I'm haunted by the question of when information becomes knowledge. What I've presented here is only a special instance of that larger angst. I'm perhaps not yet old enough he was in his 80s at the time. I'm perhaps not old enough to seek for, uh, the further line where knowledge becomes wisdom. I was reminded of that haunting conclusion by one of your book's animating themes, which seems to me to be the idea maintained and amplified by your father that humans are essentially composed of information. And that as far as we are composed of information, an entity that could record, process, and provide a comprehensive assessment of that information collection could essentially know us. I came away from your book myself haunted by the question of whether we can understand what it means to know another person by way of collecting and developing a model of information about them, and whether that kind of knowledge about another person is akin to wisdom about them. How do you think about this? Can a computing machine truly know us? When we know another person, do we know them as a computer machine knows them, or is there something else that's kind of core to that knowledge or to that wisdom about that person? Yeah, I mean, the way that a machine knows and the way that a human knows is different. I was thinking about this a lot. I was often thinking about myself in relationship to the algorithm that animates the chatbot of my grandfather because I was doing this kind of repetitive labor of, you know, documenting, drawing my grandfather, you know, tracing his his words, you know, writing things over and over again, entering them into, you know, there's all kinds of repetitive labor that I was doing as a part of this project, both the chatbot project and the book. And I would think about myself in relationship to this algorithm. And I would think about what does the algorithm know that I don't know? <laughs> you know, What does the algorithm retain that I don't retain? And possibly technology is, uh, there's some emergent properties potentially in, in complex technological systems, but it does feel like there is a an ability to retain precise, detailed information exactly as it's entered that machines have that humans don't have. You know, we have like uh, our memory is notoriously flawed and potentially flawed for a reason. And memory and imagination share a similar part of our brain. And, you know, when we remember things, we, we, Im we imbue them with imagination. And that is not how machines work with memory. Of course, we have ChatGPT has a hallucination problem now, which potentially might be a, a, a sign of it being more sophisticated than machines in the past, the fact that it does that. Um, but our ability to sort of like imagine and imbue and hallucinate is a part of our memory. And I do think it's a part in a strange way of our coming to know people because our knowledge of people is always inflected with our own experience of them and our own consciousness. And like, I don't necessarily want to go <laughs> down the rabbit hole of what is consciousness, but we, we do understand intuitively what I'm referring to when I bring that up in this context, that there is like a, a presence of being a human. There is like an experience of the inner life. There is a kind of 
inarticulatable sense of being alive and of being in community with other people that we all walk around with. And we don't know if machines have that. They don't appear to have that. Maybe they will one day. They don't appear to have that. And that is a part of knowing people. And so, you know, the question of whether or not machines will know in the way that humans know, I think, remains to be seen. But I think it's like it does hinge on this other thing that's much more mysterious that we still don't understand, which like we can call consciousness or we can call the spirit or, you know, we can we can give it a name. And I know philosophers talk about these things in much more precise ways. Um, but for my for my fuzzy artist brain, you know, this is all sort of swirling in the same direction, which is like the fundamental mystery of what it is to be a human being. But without asking you to get into the fundamental mystery, the unanswerable question of what it means to be a human being, um, maybe a, a more basic but I think equally important question is, is technology changing what it means to relate to one another as human beings? I'm reminded you know, of some very basic things that I see as commonplace right now. Uh, when I for- forget something, I might say something like, my hard drive is full, right? It's a different <laughs> way of thinking about what my mind is entirely influenced by a form of technology that previous generations of humans would not have an understanding of. But I use it easily as a metaphor, as an easy, tangible grasp to try and understand and explain what's going on in my mind. It's a very 21st century metaphor. Do you think that the way that we engage with human beings, the kinds of technologies that we have uh, available as conduits to relate to one another through or to know one another through, or the technologies that are being introduced to us in terms uh, that that they're uh, analogically on understandings we have as humans are changing what it means to relate to one another or how we think about what it means to relate to one another. I mean, absolutely. I think that that our language, our commonplace language is a really good clue for our, you know, for this, this change. Humans tend to think about their minds in relationship to the technology of the day. I think during Freud's time, they thought of uh, the brain as like a series of steam engines, such as like, losing steam or blowing off steam we we have these older metaphors that we've we've taken from that era um and now we we think of our mind as a computer i wonder what's next you know i wonder what we're going to think about our minds as next because i do think these things are ultimately metaphors you know we're looking to technology as a metaphor for to explain how our minds really work maybe we found it maybe our mind really is a computer you know i don't know that i think that that remains to be seen but I think that the way that we think about our own minds definitely influences the way that we think about other people's minds. You know, I do I do think information deluge is a huge part of the sort of problems of our generation's social ills. I think that we feel really overwhelmed with information, really overwhelmed with the potential to sift through information and have more real communion with others. I think that 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 seems to be a common problem for our era is that there's so many opportunities to project yourself to other people, to receive information about other people, but then when are we really getting the like actual coming together and connecting? Not that we don't get that, but I think sometimes it's hard to sift through the deluge of information to like come and have those moments, which I think we really need. So I think that's one negative way that technology is 
affecting the way that we interact as human beings. Um, I think your question was more about our understanding of ourselves as human beings. And I think the like the question of identity for me and what I really am and what is an extension of me is a is a salient one that I think about a lot and I think people in our generation think about a lot. You know, like is my book me or is it a shadow of me? Is it a reflection of me? Is it another entity that I gave birth to? You know, is it a you know, is my Instagram profile me? Is it a, you know, like, are, are these things shades of me or are is me some separate thing? And these are just things I create that are separate. I don't have the answer to that, but I think these are important questions that a lot of us are thinking about. How do we relate to like our digital artifacts? And um, to what extent are they really us? Yeah. And how do we relate to other people's digital artifacts or avatars? And are we relating to them qua them or some conduit or intermediary, you know, to interface with them? Yeah. I mean, this is why these thinking about the logic of these platforms, social media platforms is so important because like what are the what what is the what are the other considerations that you're injecting into the social exchange? You know, like what what are you making required of people in order to connect? What part of themselves do they have to overstate? That I think has really important implications. And I think it, it, these are problems that technologists can and should figure out how to engage with. I, I don't think technology in and of itself, you know, necessitates certain ways of relating or certain quote unquote fake ways of relating. But some of the sort of social media of our era has certainly given rise to like a kind of falseness, you know. And some of the business models, like who owns my data? <laughs> I don't own the data about me, the accumulation of information. And if we truly are information, Facebook owns me, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. they own all of the data that I have generated about myself. In a sense, that means that they own that avatar. They own that part of me. So I do think that it's the technologies, but also the business models and the legal structures that are potentially fundamentally working together to change that understanding. That does come up in my book, as you will read about if you buy the book. <laughs> there's a there's a sort of access question with the chatbot. You know, how am I getting to talk to him? And, you know, what, where does he live, you know, physically? And I'm using, I realize I'm now I'm using he, which is not always how I talk about the chatbot, but something about this question makes me want to use that pronoun to think, you know, when I think about the chatbot as being owned or kept in some way by some company, it makes me want to like anthropomorphize it more, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting moment in your book where you're talking to a technologist who's clearly working on the chatbot in some way. And I couldn't quite piece together where you were in terms of the campus, but it does seem like a Google-like place. And on that Google-like place, you're told at a certain point that you don't have access or that visiting hours are over yeah. or that you have to leave or that you have to come back or that you don't have certain permissions. And if this avatar of your grandfather is an extension of your grandfather, it does raise interesting complications about ownership and provenance and relationality that bring questions of corporate governance and, and corporate management and the ownership of that data, I think, to bear in terms of how we think about what another entity is and how we think about their rela our relationships to them. And just to bring it back to the art and technology thing, you know, there's like a question about whether or not the chatbot is a work of art, 
you know, is it like a painting of my grandfather or is it more fundamentally connected to my grandfather? And I think that that, that question has important implications for the rights of the chapel. I think we have time for one last question. I want to pose a hypothetical to you. Would you want your hypothetical child to create an AI chatbot of you or out of your archive? Would you want an AI chatbot of yourself? Why or why not? After completing this project, what's your take on whether or not this is a future that you would want for yourself? I'm going to give an unqualified yes to that to that question. Because I feel like I have faith that the way humanity will engage with these technologies in the future will be with sufficient nuance. I'm just going to like give my future child and the future humans the benefit of the doubt that they understand that the AI chatbot of me is not a full and complete recreation of everything that I am or ever was. I think that that's important to keep that in mind. But, you know, personally, I think I'm a writer and an artist because I want to live on. You know, I I want to continue to have, like, the labors of my mind and my hands be relevant to the people in the future for whom it might be relevant. And I think that was one of the most important takeaways from my book is that, you know, my grandfather was an artist and I don't have a ton of artistic models in my family for sort of how to be an artist, how to make that work practically, how to make that work sort of in terms of how you balance your love of your art with your love for human beings in your life. Seeing him struggle with that, you know, that's one of the things that my engagement with his archives revealed to me. Seeing him struggle with that authentically and getting a real sense of it was really meaningful for me. And if I could like, I do sometimes struggle with the ethics of like, would my grandfather want to share some of the things that I, you know, found in his archive with me if he were there? Would he be willing to part with some personal statement about himself and and give it to me? I don't know if he would. You know, I don't know him well enough to know if like that sort of exchange would be one that he would, would take as a human person himself, would he say the things to me that his chatbot says to me? But I believe that like, it's ultimately good that I was able to learn the things that I learned about him through the writing that he left behind, whether or not like he thought about me finding it, you know, he died before my parents met. So, you know, he, I don't know if he thought about his theoretical grandchildren, but I do feel like ultimately it's good that I had the experience I had with his archive. And so I certainly want that for my, you know, theoretical progeny even if my theoretical progeny are you know artificially intelligent robots living in the cloud (laughs) well thank you very much amy thank you deb that was a great conversation 